Have you heard of the story about a man who went to see his uh, GP because he was uh, very sad, very depressed, and very down? And so after the GP gave him uh, the prescription of some anti-depression pills and medication and all that, and just before he walked out of the door, the GP said to him, you know, chill out. There's a circus in town. Go and watch. The clown is really funny. A, have a good laugh. Relax. Don't take it so seriously. And the man looked back at the, at the door, turned back and looked at the GP and said, Yes, I have been there every night because I'm the clown. Well, this man need no introduction. Robin Williams, who could have forgot about his movies on Mrs. Dartfire, Patch Adam, Goodwill Hunting, Dead Poets Society, Good Morning Vietnam, and his job is act and to make people laugh. He's a comedian. And yet we all know that in 2014, at the age of 63, he died by suicide at his home. And of course, his autopsy revealed undiagnosed Lewy body disease. And I read an article about some people reflecting on his death, and one journalist said this. This is what the journalist said about uh, Robin Williams, and in general, comedian. This is what he said, or she. There is a common belief that comedians are funny so as to escape their sadness. That often behind the jokes, pratfalls, and silly voices, there hides a depressed, tortured clown, squeezing laughs from audiences in an attempt to evade crippling Melancholia. I use him as an example. There are many more, as we know, uh, because he entertains people, he makes people laugh. We would think that he's very happy. I have long found this pair of observations about contemporary society curiously ironic. On one hand, our society offers more helps than any in human history. We have institutions, services, consultants, counsellors, and the Dr. Phil's on TV of all kinds who unscrew the tops of our heads and probe our inner self, diagnose our problems, offer solutions, and provide direction for success happiness and fulfillment in life. We have the most in this modern age. Yet on the other hand, despite the abundance of helps available, the need keeps growing. We have a remarkable inability to find contentment or fulfillment. And we have a remarkable ability to mess up our lives. Drugs, self-esteem, discontent, broken families, etc. I just did a Google on how much was our federal budget on mental health. About, about I think, $13 billion. 
we seem to have more trouble than ever just coping with life in general. It doesn't take a prophet's insight to recognize that our society seems increasingly adept at ruining itself from the individual level to the family to the societal level. We are falling apart at the seams. We just don't seem to have the wisdom to live life successfully. And the question is always why. Someone coined this poem, said the situation today is lots of knowledge but little understanding. Lots of means but little meaning. Lots of know-how but little know-why. Lots of sight but little insight. And did you know that human knowledge is growing at an exponential rate? In 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately 100 years. And by the end of 1945, world knowledge doubled every 25 years. And did you know in 2020, the statistics show, you know how knowledge is doubled every... You want to give it a go? Every... 8 to 12 hours. World knowledge double every 8 to 12 hours. T.S. Eliot, the poet, say, Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries, and now 21, bring us further from God and nearer to the dust. But we want to go to the scripture. We want to look at the Bible. And therefore, we have chosen for the next couple of months to look at the wisdom literature. We are going to do a series of sermons from the wisdom literature called Wise Living. And I hope we can, today what I want to do is just an overview and particularly one verse that we are all very familiar with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to explore that topic. So wisdom literature, if you are not aware, in the, Bible, in the Old Testament there are 39 books. You can break it up into different genres uh, of the literature, different type of literature. So if you try to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, thinking like you are reading any other normal book that you have a big picture flow from one to another, you are mistaken. The Bible is written by 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. And there are many different types of literature in the Bible. So if you want to know history, there are 17 books of history. And then 17 books of prophetical books. And then five books known as the wisdom literature. So 17, 5, 17. 17 historical, 17 prophet, prophetical. And prophetical, you can divide further into 12 and 5. 12 are minor prophets and 5 are major prophets. They are known as minor and prophets, not because of rank, simply because of the length of the book. That's all. So, but today we're going to start exploring not entirely five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Song. We, are, we can't be going through all the books. What we hope is to give you an overview. We're going to kickstart with an overview of the five books, and then we're going to have snapshot of 
individual topics that we believe it is uh, essential to live life uh, successfully in the eyes of God. So this morning, I want to read through Proverbs 1, verse 1 to 7, and then I'm going to expound on just one verse in Proverbs 9, verse 10. Proverbs 1, verse 1 to 7 says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. As we all know, Solomon asked for wisdom and he's known as the wisest man. So the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just, and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There was a quote that said, you are only young once, but you can be immature your whole life. Never mistaken knowledge for wisdom. Accumulation of knowledge doesn't mean that you are wise. You may be in intelligent, you may be smart, you are never wise. One one helps you to make a living, the other helps you to make a life. A smart person knows what to say, but a wise person knows when to say it. Wisdom is knowing how little we know, by Socrates. Acknowledging that the world of knowledge is so much there, any PhD student will know that. That you're only scratching a survey. You open a door and then we enter into the door, there's another hundred doors. And then when you enter into one of the hundred doors, you enter it, there's another 100 doors. You can only specialize, sub, 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 specialize in one minor area. And even that is not sufficient. Knowledge comes from learning, but wisdom comes from living. Brian O'Driscoll uh, says this, a very nice way of putting it. Said, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. And wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. But anyway, some people still put tomato in the salad. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but there's a distinction between uh, wisdom. It doesn't mean to say that accumulation of knowledge leads to wisdom. Many, many people with a lot of knowledge, smart, but they are, in the Bible, they are actually a fool. So here... I want to expound in the time that I have just this verse as a way of introduction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What I want to do is just give you the three points and explain the meaning of the fear of the Lord, the meaning of the word beginning, and the meaning of the word wisdom. And I'm going to reverse it. Wisdom first beginning, and then I'll show you the fear of the Lord. Well, that's past eight seconds already, isn't it? 
Have you been shaking your head and focus back? Let me begin with the word wisdom. The word wisdom in the Old Testament simply means skill. And more generally, wisdom has to do with the skill of living successfully. So it's not just only a skill in doing particular thing, but the skill is referring to living life. Bearing in mind that we are human being, not human doing. So more generally, wisdom has to do with the skill of living successfully. As one Old Testament scholar says, wisdom entails understanding God's world, understanding the way life works, understanding different situations in life so that you are able to make the right decisions to avoid certain bad consequences and to do things that we are faithful to God and brings God's blessing. So in short, in the line, wisdom is the skill of living successfully under God. So that's the meaning of wisdom. The skill of living successfully under God. That God is in the picture. God is in the picture. If I, if, I, if I may help you to remember three, if you can remember three words, then you can remember the word uh, wisdom in the explanation. The first word is harmony. Successful living according to the scripture is living life in harmony with God's wisdom. Harmony. It is only found, and the second word is alignment. Not just harmony, but alignment. You know how you align things? You align it straight. So the second word you remember wisdom is alignment. That you align yourself under the will of God. Align. Don't be out of the zone. You align yourself in that zone. It is an alignment with the way God has created life to flourish. Just like gravity. There are a lot of universal, physical universal law that if you cross it, you'll be in trouble. And spiritually, life is also the same. There are certain boundaries that once you cross that, you're in trouble. So wisdom is aligning, living in harmony with God's wisdom and align yourself with the way God has created life to be according to His character, ways and purposes. And when we live in harmony with God's wisdom, it leads to true life, true liberty, and true happiness. It helps us avoid self-destruction because you're living in that zone, in that you're aligning yourself with God in harmony. And the third word, that it, it, it means the same thing. To remember wisdom is the word frequency. Yeah, you tune things to its frequency so that you can listen to something. So true wisdom is to perceive the nature of this world as created by God and to live in accord with it. In other words, wisdom is getting tuned into God's frequency for life and living in that frequency. So three words to help you to remember what wisdom is in the, in the Bible. 
Wisdom is skill of living successfully under God. Harmony, alignment, and tuning into God's frequency. And of course, we'll come to that. You can't talk about wisdom without eventually accumulating in Christ, being the wisdom of God. And we will come to that uh, later part of the series. Uh, secondly, let me move on to explain to you the meaning of wisdom. Oh, sorry, the meaning of the word beginning. Because it said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Beginning. What does beginning mean? I mean, uh, straight away, the, the, the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of beginning is chronology, chronologically. In a sense, something starts, you know, begin the first thing. Uh, meaning something like starting point. So it's the, the starting point of getting wisdom is fear of the Lord, chronology. But it can also mean a logical sense, meaning something like foundation. Beginning can mean foundation. It's a start, foundation. Or the most important thing you have to start with is the fear of the Lord. In order to acquire wisdom, the very start, the first thing, the most important thing, the most foundation thing is the fear of the Lord if you want to acquire wisdom. So it could mean the, the two things. The fear of the Lord is the starting point of wisdom in chronological sense, but it also doesn't mean to say that, oh, once you move on and then that's it. It also means like what the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said, it could mean first and controlling principle. What the alphabet is to reading and writing, what notes are to music, is what numbers are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to life and wisdom and knowledge. So the starting point, the controlling Principle. It is the first step of wisdom. It is the first and controlling principles of wisdom. The source of all wisdom. Just as birth is the beginning of life, so fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is the gateway. It is the pathway to attaining wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So to obtain wisdom, God must be in the picture. Without this first step of wisdom, you can't get to the rest of it. So wisdom, so beginning then means the first or controlling principle. So to live successfully under God to attain this wisdom, the beginning, the first controlling principle, the most important thing of all, the gateway, the pathway, the doorway, is the fear of the Lord. As John Bunyan says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And they that lack the beginning have neither middle nor end. It has to start from there because that's a foundational principle. All right learning must proceed from a proper recognition of God and a right response to Him. And when we say that the fear of the Lord is the foundation, is the controlling principle of successful living under Him, then that itself uh, opens up a lot of implication. That means there is no room for autonomous reasoning. 
we can never, we will never imagine that we can know better. There is no autonomous reasoning in the sense. Ultimately, it comes under God. You know, we say that now we live in the postmodern era. Postmodernism, one of the, the, the trademarks or one of the worldviews of postmodernism is relativism, meaning to say that there's nothing absolute. Everything is relative. What is true to you is true to you. What is true to me is true to, to me. What is right to you is right to you. What is good to you is, is good to you. That, that is, everything is relative. There's no absolute. The dismantle of the absolute, postmodernists, the dismantle of the uh, 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 absolute, as Francis Schaeffer many years ago said, modern men have both their feet firmly planted in mid-air. Relativism. But prior to postmodernism is modernism, which many of us here grew up in that era, where absolute is, it is acknowledged. So the older modernism acknowledged the idea of absolute truth, but it but it has such utter confidence in the abilities of the human mind to discern all truth that they fell into this part that there is no room at all for the idea of revelation, that it has to be revealed to us. God has to come into the picture and reveal to us. You cannot find God. God has to reveal to us. And so every modernism problem is rationalism. Yeah, as philosophy would call it. Whereas postmodernism problem is relativism. And some of us may have taken a course in philosophy uh, along the way, and then there is this big word, big word called epistemology. Epistemology, meaning the theory of knowing. So philosophy, they study this epistemology, the theory of knowing. How do you know what you know? How can you be certain of what you know is what you know? And so the scripture then, so if I may say this verse, this verse, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the epistemology of the Bible. Is that the theory of knowing anything is the starting point is the fear of the Lord. That is the epistemology. That is the theory of knowing in Scripture, begins with God and His revelation. And then there is huge implication in understanding that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me move now to the third point on fear of the Lord. What does fear of the Lord mean? Because the word fear, it conjures up all kinds of uh, bad connotation. You know? After all, didn't John save? Uh, perfect love casts out all fear. Uh, so fear has a lot of bad connotations in the sense. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let me read to you a few verses here, and then you'll, you'll get a clearer picture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then Proverbs 14 says, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for their children, it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Proverbs 19 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. 
And then one more verse in Proverbs 28 said, those who respect the Lord. See, that's another way of translating fear of the Lord. Or blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Those who respect the Lord will live and be satisfied, unbothered by troubles. So whatever the fear of the Lord means, if we, what we know from just a few verses that I've read to you, that it leads to life. It is a good thing. It leads to confidence. It leads to satisfaction. It leads to blessing. It leads to making us wise. It protects us from death and destruction and harm. From all those verses that I read to you, fear of the Lord indicates all these wonderful things. So the question then is, what does fear of the Lord really mean? It doesn't sound like a good thing if we don't read it from the Scripture, anger. When we think of fear, we almost always associate with something bad, something to be avoided. We associate it with being afraid, with a phobia. Phobia is the Greek word for fear. So are we to be godophobic, fear of God? I think there is... Martin Luther, the great reformer, provided a very good biblical insight into this thing. He distinguished, he said, fear of the Lord, you can distinguish fear two ways. Two ways. He said there's such a thing called a servile fear and a filial fear. The servile fear is a kind of fear that maybe a prisoner in the torture chamber has for his tormentor. Dragful anxiety, you know, comes over you when you have that kind of torture figure there. What is it? Uh, gas chamber, you know, your fear, that kind of servile fear. But Martin Luther went on to say there is such a thing called filial fear. Drawing from the Latin concept from which we get the idea of family much like the fear that a child has for a good father. Respect, a failure, reverence, awe kind of fear. L Martin Luther said, a young child has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves. Not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is in that child's world the source of power security, and love. So that is the filial love. So it's a husband and wife. You don't, you don't necessarily mean you fear your husband or your wife, but when you go out of the way, you, you, because of the person that you love, you, you don't want to hurt them. You don't, it's not the fear of being punished or anything like that. And so here, Martin Luther is saying the fear of the Lord should be interpreted, seen in the light of of this filial fear, anger, reverence, awe, love. And Romans chapter 8, maybe uh, Luther got this idea from Romans chapter 8 that says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Filial fear, fear the Lord is in that context of loving relationship or reverence. Maybe, maybe the best way to describe this in contemporary way 
is by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Chronicles of uh, Nadia, one of these, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Uh, the story is about four adventurous children enter into a land called Narnia. And slowly, they hear about rumors about the king of Narnia. So they're wondering, who is this king? Who is this king of Narnia, this, this place? And so then the, there's Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Uh, they begin to explain to the four little ones about the king of Narnia, which is Aslan, A-S-L-A-N, which most of us are familiar with. And later on, described later in the book as having great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, which caused the children to go all trembly. And then there's this conversation that go on between Lucy and, and Mr. Beaver. And Lucy said, asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the king of Nadia, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver said, a man, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the seas. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? And then he said, Aslan is a lion, not a man. The great lion. And then Susan, another lady said, oh, I thought he, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Bezos said, That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most of, else, most of or else just silly. Does it mean that he's not safe? Safe? Mr. Beaver said, Don't you hear? Don't you know? Who said that he is safe? But I tell you what, he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. So he's not safe, but he's good. So fear, fear, a coming fear of the Lord is that this is a good God. He may not be safe in the sense, safe in the sense of when you have him in your life, you've got to change. Everything, just like elephant living in your house. Can you not change if there's an elephant living in your house? The bigness of God, the greatness of God. The bigness, the greatness, as well as the nearness and the loving kindness of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The filial fear, loving relationship. C.S. Lewis, in another book, Mere Christianity, say, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something or someone who is above you. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you have God in the picture, When you have the Lord, loving God as your guide, He is the one giving you, guiding you, sovereign over you. And when you live harmony, alignment, tuning to His frequency, that will be the pathway and the doorway, the foundational 
the controlling principle of attaining wisdom, living successfully under God. You know, many voices in Western culture often view Christianity as an enslaving religion. It loves to tell us what we can and cannot do. It treats us like children, like slaves. And this stance has been given fresh and articulate life in a book by a Canadian cultural commentator by the name of Charles Taylor. And in one book, A Secular Age, he says one of the things, that is their view, okay? He said, one of the things that characterize contemporary secularism that we live in now is our commitment to authenticity. You must be authentic to yourself. By authenticity, he is referring to living out your self-chosen identity. That's why we have so much struggle now, isn't it? You can choose what you want to be. You can choose your identity. You can choose your race. You can choose your lifestyle. And now you can choose your gender. So gender is not by birth. Gender is by choice. You can choose your economic goals. You can choose your nationalism. You can choose your citizenship. You can choose anything. And so one of the things about contemporary uh, society, secularism, is this commitment to authenticity that you must be able to be authentic with who you are. And intrinsically, of course, such a stance is anti-authoritarian. And under such regime, it's no wonder that Christianity seems narrow, limiting, twisted, enslaving, because there is an identity that is bound up with Christ. For us believers, there's this identity that we have is bound up with Christ. And the starting point is understanding that the Lord is in the picture in order for us to find wisdom. Let me finish with this uh, illustration. How many of you have read the book, The Story of Dorian Gray? Oscar Wilde. Yep, Oscar Wilde. Irish poet, playwright. And in some sense, many people say that this picture of Dorian Gray is actually the life story of himself. He's actually writing about himself. He describes in the book an exceptionally handsome young man, so captivating that he drew the awe-stricken adulation of a great artist. The artist asked him to be the subject of the portrait, for he had never seen a face so attractive and so pure. So he wanted to paint him, draw him. And when painting was completed, young Dorian became so enraptured by his own looks. And then he wistfully expressed how wonderful it would be if he could live any way he pleased and that any disfigurement of a lawless lifestyle would mar only on the picture but leave his own life, his own countenance unblemished. Make I can do anything that I want. It won't blemish me as a person, but only the, 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 the picture that's painted by this artist. He was willing to trade his soul for that wish. So Darren received his wish according to the, the, the book. 
his life of sensuality, indulgence, and even murder left his physical appearance completely untamed. Spurred on by the success of his undiscovered duplicity, he plummeted over further into the depths of wickedness because he knew it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect him. And one day, alone and pensive, Dorian went up to the attic and, unco and uncovered the portrait he had kept hidden, only to be shocked by what he saw. The hideousness of the face which bore the horror and scars of life scandalously lived, besieged by the fear of being found out and of the incriminations the portrait would reveal, he buried it among the goods he stored in his attic. But a charade came to an end when the artist himself saw the picture. He told in the story that he pleaded with Dorian to come clean, saying, Does it not say somewhere, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow? But in a fit of rage to silence that voice, Dorian Gray grabbed a knife and killed the artist. And the story reaches an emotional climate when no longer able to stand the indictment of the picture, Dorian reached for the knife once more to destroy the portrait and remove the only visible reminder of his wicked life. And the moment he thrust the blade into the canvas, the portrait returned to its pristine beauty, while Dorian Gray lay stepped to death on the floor. The ravages that had marred the picture now so disfigured him that even his servants could no longer recognize him. I think it is a brilliant illustration of how a soul, although invisible, can nonetheless be tarnished. Can an individual or a society live with complete disregard for a moral and spiritual centre and not suffer from the wounds of wickedness? Is it possible to carry on doing what we want to do without any restraint and yet at the same time without causing a damage to our soul and surrounding? Is it possible? Is there a point at which one must cry a heart to a passion and the whims of unbridled appetite and admit that enough is enough and acknowledge that the fear of the Lord is really the beginning of wisdom. It is the starting point of living wisely when we acknowledge that as God. So let me finish with this. If we fear God, we will never entertain the thought that we know better. We will bow. We will obey. And with that, we will have begun a life that is wise and rewarding. Father, we just want to thank you for your word that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. that when we acknowledge you, when we come under, when we tune to the, your frequency, when we align our life under your sovereign will, when we live in harmony with your word, 
And that becomes the controlling principle of fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the starting point, the controlling principle of attaining wisdom, to live successfully under God. Help us to be wise, Lord. And the way to be wise is to stay on the path of your word. Trust your word. Let your word lead us. Your Holy Spirit reveal truth that we will live in obedience. Then we will live a wise, good life, successful life here on earth, shining light for you. It is not measured by uh, the way the world measures success. How rich or how smart, what kind of house we live in, and all the kind of status things. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about living this life well. Not those external material things that we so often lay our life for it. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge you. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this song, uh, closing song, The Fear of the Lord, may you uh, remind us of this truth. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.